the Sudoku problem, which is you can't solve a Sudoku by chopping it into nine squares and handing them to different people and saying, can you solve the top left-hand corner? You've got to look at the overall picture in order to actually solve the problem. And I think that's, dis- that's disproportionately true in marketing. You know. Turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fans. Prepare to turn the up. Welcome to another episode of the Marketing Millennials. Today, I am joined with an advertising legend, Rory Sutherland. He's the vice chairman of one of the largest and most world-renowned agencies, Ogilvy and Mather. He's also the author of one of my favorite marketing books, Alchemy, the dark art and curious signs of creating magic in brands, business, and life. We chat about the psychology of advertising, which is an amazing topic to listen to. Hey, Rory, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for inviting me. I want to get into how did you get into advertising? So I was a classicist at uh, university, which was Latin and Greek. and. I did a year training as a teacher because if you do Latin and Greek, your fairly much default assumption is that you'll teach classics. And then I suddenly realized I had a kind of panic attack where I thought, hold on a second, if I go from school to university and back to school again, uh, I'll have spent, you know, I'm at risk of spending my entire life in kind of educational establishments. So about halfway through the year in which I was a trainee teacher, I started applying to various ad agencies. I got a few final interviews and a final job with what was then called Ogilvy and Mather Direct, which was the direct marketing wing of what was then Ogilvy and Mather. I found it pretty much, it was actually, you know, I was aiming to go into advertising, not direct marketing, because there were probably only two direct marketing agencies which actually recruited graduates. But it was the luckiest accident of my life, really, in the sense that I found it absolutely fascinating from more or less day one. And David Ogilvy always recommended you should spend three or four years in direct marketing before you go into advertising, the purpose being that in direct marketing, you can see what works. Very early on, I mean, you know, pretty much from the first few weeks, actually, you pretty rapidly realize that the standard economic theory of how consumers take decisions how they think, decide, and act. That standard theory bears very, very little relation to what's actually going on in people's minds and what the data reveals from direct response advertising. And so that kind of kindled my love for behavioral economics, even though back in 1988, I didn't know it was called behavioral economics. I didn't really realize it was a field of study. I didn't know there was a field of study called decision science. And so I was always convinced for about 15, 20 years that there was this missing science. And it was only sometime around, I suppose, about 2008 nudge must have come out around about that year, I suppose, maybe 2009, that I discovered there was this whole field of inquiry into human decision-making, because I always thought it was the missing link. You know, don't get me wrong, I think there's an enormous value to creativity, I think there's an enormous value to data and measurement. But actually, 
the data only tells you what people are doing. It doesn't really explain or allow you to generalize why they might be doing it. And so I always think that um, data measurement, analytics, behavioral science, and creativity form sort of three legs of a stool. The behavioral science allows you to expand the solution space. The creativity allows you to explore the solution space. And then the data science allows you to validate your exploration. And then you go back into behavioral science to explain what you found. And then the whole cycle begins again. It's rinse and repeat. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Why do you think a lot of like universities don't teach this like psychology and like marketing courses and stuff like that? Well, I mean, a, a bigger mystery really is why the links between marketing and psychology have been historically so weak because marketing's always lacked a kind of pet academic discipline. You know, if you think about it, if you work in finance, logistics, etc., there are all these areas which you can draw on where the latest research may or may not have some bearing on what you do. But marketing has always operated in what you might call a conversational backwater. I remember a colleague of mine, a very brilliant copywriter, actually, called Alistair Graham. And he said to me one day, he said, the strange thing about the language of marketing, the very vocabulary we use, he said, it's like the language of astrology. It's fine if you're talking to fellow believers, but if you're talking to anybody else, you sound like a lunatic. And we've developed this strange marketing and marcoms vocabulary, which I think has been self-limiting because it doesn't really enable you either to draw on any kind of recognizable research, nor does it allow you to establish credibility through reference to findings. You know, everything has to be kind of taken on trust and instinct. And then it doesn't allow you to talk to anybody else within the client organization either. You know, the second, one of the things I discovered is that CEOs, for example, or even C, chief financial officers, are very interested in marketing, so long as you don't call it marketing. The second you start using marketing vocabulary, you know, you talk about brand iconography or something, their immediate reaction is go and talk to the marketing director. But if you talk about behavioral economics, they find it just as interesting as the marketing director does. And I think, you know, a great criticism I have of the marketing services industry is a large part of it behaves as though we were still paid on commission. You know, it's looking for people who have a problem in a large media budget. And I keep arguing, look, for every person who's got a problem in a big media budget, there are 100 people who've got a budget and a problem. You know, it may not be that they've got the means to solve that problem through mass media advertising. But as I said, why do we care? We haven't been paid on commission since about 1989. You know, there are 100 problems out there which you can solve with that, what I call that benign cycle of measurement and testing, behavioral science, and creativity. And, you know, we have the scope to deploy ourselves much, much more widely than we do. You know, we end up, broadly speaking, the companies which own large brands, which have large media budgets, typically those that were founded between sort of 1850 and 1920, somewhere between Chicago and New York. And all the while, there's this whole panoply of interesting business problems, including those in Silicon Valley, by the way, in which a marketing mindset could play a decisive role. And we just ain't there, you know? Yeah. How do you recommend people start testing like these counterintuitive things? Like, because I think a lot of people, like you say in your book, like, Nobody got fired over being like logical. So, like, no, no, absolutely right. And so, generally, what business people 
maybe unconsciously are looking for, is that the safety of your decision is dependent on the quality of your reasoning, not the quality of the outcome. Okay. So if you make a decision that seems entirely logical and kind of ineluctably sensible, okay, no one considers there may be any other alternative. And therefore, regardless of the consequences, you're not at significant risk of blame. And blame avoidance, of course, is a rational strategy in business because the rewards for mega success are not all that generous outside of banking and finance, whereas the punishment for failure, particularly irrational failure, uh, is that you lose your job. Um, If you think about it, there is nothing I could do which would cause my employer to give me a million dollars, okay? Nothing. Absolutely zero. Okay, doesn't matter what my decision might be. So the upside is heavily capped, whereas the downside, ever-present downside, is you lose your job. And so this creates kind of risk aversion within silos of business, particularly marketing, I think. And so uh, it's kind of interesting because you said, you know, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. People essentially know that the best shield, the best way to defend your job is to give the illusion of what you might call sequential rational decision-making, deduction, I suppose. And the problem there, I think, is, well, there are several problems. One, I think there are just far more great ideas out there that you can post-rationalize than there are great ideas you can pre-rationalize. You know, even if you look at science, okay, the majority of breakthrough scientific discoveries were made serendipitously and then post-rationalized, okay? They weren't the result of, you know, of sequential logic. Penicillin being the most famous case, but vaccination came from an anecdote about milkmaids not getting smallpox, and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's my first problem. The second problem is there arises this what I call the double standard, so that all creative people have to present their ideas to rational people for validation and approval, but that never applies the other way around. You never get a bunch of accountants in a room who say the product's not selling very well. I think we need to drop the price. But before we drop the price, let's share our thinking with some slightly wacky people to see if they've got any alternative ideas. And there could be 20 alternatives to let's drop the price, including doing some advertising. It could be putting the price up. You never know. The the thing may not be selling because people just think it's too cheap. Okay, that happens. It could be that you develop an even higher priced product alongside that product to make it feel cheaper, even if you don't reduce the price at all. There are loads and loads of psychological alchemical solutions which are better alternatives to dropping the price if you want to sell more of something and yet those aren't even admitted into the room because the economic occam's razor of if you want to sell more you reduce the cost okay combined with by the way market research where more or less everybody will tell you they want things cheaper okay if you combine those things you'll be vastly overconfident in rational decisions particularly because you've never really explored the alternative solution space and that's my case for behavioral science once you admit psychology into the equation and perception and so on the potential solution space for any business problem becomes an order of magnitude larger and then you use creativity to explore it like do you have any examples or do you see any companies out there that if they change the way they're doing things like psychologically, like they could grow faster than you think just from like you thinking like I would change this and this would happen to this company. Well, just earlier I came up, you know, with a, uh, I was talking to a bunch of financial people. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
And it occurs to me, just to take an example, the pensions industry, okay? Now, I grant you, your younger audience, first of all, there is an opportunity to sell a savings product to younger people if you don't call it a pension. The idea of retirement just seems too remote, okay? Uh, but secondly, a pension is an inherently ridiculous product for anybody aged under about 33, because the idea of putting money into something which is irretrievable is simply a bad financial decision at the age of 23. There's too much uncertainty in your life for you to confidently say, I won't need that money in the interim. You know, when you're 55, you know, your likely life outcomes other than health related are much more tightly and narrowly defined. I think you have much more visibility and predictability over what's happening. And therefore, investing a certain amount in retirement becomes more and more logical. But the pensions industry does some really strange things. It, you know, it's, it's got a product with a name which is almost impossible to sell to anybody under 40, to be absolutely honest. It also makes it impossible for you to make ad hoc payments despite the fact there would be considerable tax advantages from doing so. So that obviously is partly a government regulation problem by the way pensions are regulated. But that's the case of something. Now, a classic case of a breakthrough in this I always give is Uber, which is that nobody spotted the fact that the thing that's really painful about ordering a cab is not the duration of the wait, it's the uncertainty. And so the Uber map is a perfect example of a breakthrough psychological innovation. I think there's a borrowable, by the way, I think there's a stealable innovation from an insight you could have around Starbucks and Five Guys, which is if you're all about one thing, coffee, in the case of Starbucks, the burger, in the case of Five Guys, slight sideline is thing, so long as you make the ancillary stuff comparatively reasonable. So if you'd gone around beforehand and you'd said to Americans in 1993, would you pay four bucks for a cup of coffee and in a paper cup that you take away? I think you would have gotten pretty resounding piss off, right? Uh, Five Guys fascinates me because, you know, there are places that sell $10 burgers, but they tend to be table service, you know, napkins, cutlery, that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, Five Guys manages to charge kind of three times as much as McDonald's or maybe even more for a burger. Okay. Now, the burger is slightly more luscious, I think it's fair to say, than McDonald's burger. Okay. But what fascinates me about that is the strange pricing structure at Five Guys, which is the burger, which is the bit where you think there's a big difference, is monumentally expensive. The signature shake is expensive. Everything else is kind of a bit of a bargain. You get an extra scoop of fries, even if you order the small fries, you've got more than enough fries. You get uh, free peanuts, you get free refills in the drink. All the toppings on the burger are free, for example. Okay. So, you know, I think there might be a kind of interesting way to innovate where you have a very limited focus on a very narrow type of food and drink and where you charge actually quite highly simply because of the... I suppose you could call this the jack-of-all-trades heuristic. If you only make one thing, you've got to be pretty damn good at that one thing. And I, I was talking to my colleague in Australia, and he said there's a guy who's kind of Australian food entrepreneur who's developed this thing called Wings and Tins. And it delivers, you can collect, etc. But all it basically does is chicken wings of a total variety of flavorings from sort of super hot chili, Nashville hot stuff, to blander you know, seasonings. The only thing it does is chicken wings and tins of beer. And, you know, that's a kind of case where I think what Starbucks has revealed, I think vastly too few people have experimented with their own version of Amazon Prime, by the way.
That's another, you know, brilliant behavioral breakthrough, which has been borrowed surprisingly infrequently, I think, by other players. You know, a, a, a physical retailer could do that. You know, you pay 20 bucks a year, everything you get here is, you know, X percent off. Yeah, we have, I mean, we have that at Costco here in the United States. Yeah, so it's a membership thing, isn't it? Yeah. So you pay to join, yeah. Yeah. The one question I have also is like, how do you recommend people, younger people start thinking like counterintuitively and start testing things at an early age and start thinking psychologically? Because I think like too many people are going into this like, and especially in the marketing profession, it's like they over say like you have to be a data driven marketer. Which- no, 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 no. I, I hate this. I mean, you, what you need, you probably need to survive to be what's sometimes called a T-shaped marketer, which is a combination of depth in one field and breadth across the others. Okay. But this idea of over-specialization is hopelessly dangerous. It also leads to silification where marketing becomes dangerously siloed. And actually, no one's really looking at the overall health of the company or the brand because they're too focused on their own narrow metrics. And then it leads to a problem which I call the Sudoku by chopping it into nine squares and handing them to different people and saying, can you solve the top left-hand corner? You've got to look at the overall picture in order to actually solve the problem. And I think that's, dis- that's disproportionately true in marketing. You know, you know, if you only focus on the bottom of the funnel, right, if that's your only interest, you're only rewarded for focusing on that, that company will have worse results than one that practices what Mark Ritson calls bothism, which is we need a healthy balance between the top of the funnel and the bottom, between long-term brand building communications and short-term transactional activities, okay? And the relationship between them isn't additive, it's multiplicative, Okay. And so it's only by understanding, to use Scott Fitzgerald's phrase, the whole equation that you can really do a marketer's job properly. And so this business of increasing fragmentation alarms the hell out of me. The other thing it leads to, which I think is a mistake, is the idea of sequential processing marketing, which I don't really buy. Now, I'm going to make a really clear distinction here. I buy wholesale the idea of checklists, okay? Have you looked at it this way? Have you considered this? Have you considered that? What about this variable? What about that variable? To make sure you don't overlook anything. You know, pilots have checklists. Surgeons have checklists, okay? We ought to have checklists. But a sequential process only applies when you're manufacturing exactly the same thing and when your activity is essentially context-free. You know, a Ford Model T is a Ford Model T is a Ford Model T, right? In what we're doing... Clients like the idea of process because it looks efficient, okay? We do this, and then we do this, and then we do that, okay? And then you get, it goes to this department, the planning department, and then it goes to the creative department. I think it's bullshit, okay? Incidentally, if you talk to really mature and experienced planners, they say the same thing. They say, I don't really believe in process. You know, I don't really believe there's a one-size-fits-all methodology which um, will solve all our problems because we're, in, we're not in a science of, repetition or a science of averages we're in a science of exceptions it's the peculiar anecdotal fact or the the semantic accident that gives rise to the breakthrough and the great problem with process as i said is there are far more things you can post rationalize than there are you pre-rationalize and so the correct approach is highly iterative and i had a really nice argument about well it wasn't an argument really but a really great breakthrough 
in this the other day, which is there was a strategy that was rejected by a kind of planner mentality because they said the problem with this strategy is people will perceive this. And I was sitting there in the meeting and I said, yeah, I see exactly the problem you're spotting. I can't give anything away because it's confidential. I'd love to give the specifics away. I understand exactly what you, what you say because I thought that too. But it just occurred to me that if you say it like this, rather than saying it like that, okay, your problem goes away. And it was actually a semantic solution. It was a grammatical solution. You know, it was literally, don't say it as a claim, say it as an exhortation. And suddenly, the problem goes away. It was probably paralleled by Nike taking what you might call sports heroes and saying, just do it, okay, borrows from the achievement of the hero, but also contains the implication that you yourself can achieve something similarly spectacular, right? And so the use of the imperative in a copy line can take a strategy which looks wholly unpromising to the planner and turn it into a game changer. You know, I mean, you know, probably someone sat down and said, you know, the great trouble with Avis is we're number two right? But you add four words, but we try harder. And that's a classic case of alchemy because you've turned a weakness into a strength by recontextualizing it. The creatives should read the client brief. They should be in the meetings all the time. It pisses me the hell off, which is that, to be honest, a lot of our, the advertising agency keeps creative talent under wraps and treats it as a resource to be deployed after all the other work has been done right? And as a result, there are far too few creative people in Ogilvy and every other large agency. As a ratio of WPP employees, they're someone like, you know, 15%. But it's a creative transformation business, right? And so this business of going, okay, we'll do a whole load of methodological work, and then we'll hand it over to creative people is, comes from a complete misconception of how creativity works. Creativity can be a game changer at any stage of a, you know, of a, of a sequence. Yeah. You know, it's just as much about coming in and going, do you really think that's your target audience? Or is that your target audience? Or is that really just your user imagery? You know, you, you, can, you can be creative from the first moment of engagement to the very last. And so this process thing essentially paints creativity into a corner where it becomes a Marcom's discipline, right? And, and Marcom's, I hate as a phrase. I mean, it's, this isn't about communication. It's about solving problems through understanding human epistemology and perception, right? Not about comms specifically. And so this painting of creativity into a corner devalues it. It makes the department too small relative to everything else. And it means the people aren't paid as much as they should be. There should be creative people who are paid large six-figure salaries who have no managerial responsibility at all. But the only way to advance in the modern agency is to take on some administrative role. You know, above a certain age, basically, in order to afford a house and car nowadays, there used to be, back in the day when ad agencies were paid on commission, there were people who just wrote ads, but they were paid handsomely. Now, the only... There, well, there are a few rich for it. You find a weird niche like me, okay, you find a fringe, fringe niche so you can move sideways or you move up into management and administration, right? There are a few brilliant people, not me, who managed to do both, okay? They managed to move into the administration without actually losing their, you know, diminishing their creative contribution. I buy that, okay? But actually, there are far too few people who are highly paid and rewarded just for doing the job they do without necessarily loading them with a, you know, a managerial role. Because this is bullshit, right? It's happened in hospitals in the UK as well. You know, the hospital administrators end up paid more than the 
bloody doctors are. And that partly comes, I think, from a payment by the hour thing. But it also comes from a completely nonsensical but universally held belief that somehow administrators, who are basically, you know, tedious bureaucrats, you know, on steroids, okay? The idea that, and this comes from things like the shareholder value movement, you know, every business becomes an extension of its own finance department and then becomes an extension of its own self-serving bureaucracy. And we've seen that happen, and it's happened in the ad industry. I think the ad industry was one of the later holdouts, to be absolutely honest. But it's dismal. And it comes from this idea that management is somehow this sacred, transferable skill for which you should pay an enormous premium. And every other function within the business is somehow fungible and infinitely replaceable. And it's the most dismal thing to have happened to capitalism, where essentially, you know, the idea of the shareholder value movement ended up having the opposite effect to that which was intended, which was really that a managerial cast captured the value in the middle. So neither the shareholders or, to use a Marxist phrase, labor, the workers, have really benefited from this. It's just led to massive managerial capture of value because the person who's kind of defining it and presenting it somehow now makes more money than the person who created it in the first place. So Marx got it wrong, really. He never really foresaw this. I know you probably think a lot of this, but what are like a couple of things you think most common advertisers are doing wrong in the industry? One thing I always say is that to borrow from, I think it's either Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, always invert. So is the value of your brand a positive or is it the absence of negatives? And I've always had a belief that the main reason we pay a premium for brands is for the sure avoidance of crappiness rather than the attainment of perfection. I think it's brands are involved in making a satisficing decision, a variance reduction decision, rather than an optimization decision. And I think that changes how you look at your brand, particularly in a service setting. But I think it also changes how you look at brand value, because we always compare the value of Dove to Nivea or the value of Dove. But Nivea is also a strong brand, right? The real value of the Dove brand comes from not being an unknown. And so we spend all our time, you know, a Samsung fixating on LG or Philips, okay? And you go, you know, is our brand slightly better than their brand? And what we're not looking for is the real joy of brand value, which is that you can charge a substantially higher margin alongside your other brand competitors compared to people nobody's ever heard of. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Like my girlfriend the other day was, I was like, why don't you buy acetaminophen, which is Tylenol? And she's like, I want to buy Tylenol because I know what's in Tylenol, but it's the same exact ingredient. Well, yes and no, actually, because with painkillers, there's a very strong placebo effect in the... So the medication kind of multiplies with the placebo effect. That's a good point. High price plus branding, plus other things like making the pills red, which as far as I know, Tylenol don't do. If they were red, she's got a particularly good value for money here. Actually, it does actually affect the efficacy. And so, so actually, it's complicated, you know, because one of the great things about a television is that I don't spend much time being anxious about my television, okay? That's part of the utility I derive from my television, and I derive that partly from the brand name, which is now barely visible on the television because, of course, the bezels have become so small, but it's still there. And it's the confident decision that I would rather pay $700 for a, you know, 49-inch television okay, that will be somewhere between okay and brilliant, that I would save a couple of hundred dollars to have a television that could be fabulously brilliant, but all the way down to crap. 
And I've always said, you know, the great strength of McDonald's is it's not brilliant, but it's incredibly good at not being bad. I mean, unbelievably good at not being bad. Um, and there, there are the magical properties. It isn't always that. I've always said of Coca-Cola, they've got the magical property that I can ask for Coca-Cola. The only other drink that has this property is probably water. Actually, not even water in some locations, because in a developing world country, I wouldn't feel comfortable at a roadside shack asking for a glass of water, right? Okay. But Coca-Cola, I can ask for it anywhere between a Michelin three-star restaurant in Paris and a Tanzanian beach shack. And I can ask for a Coke with the confident feeling that if they haven't got it in stock, that's their fault, not mine. Now, that has a huge behavioral effect because it's the confident ability to demand something. That's not true of Dr. Pepper, is it, really? You know, if I went, if I went to the, you know, the fat duck at Bray in the UK, I think it's Michelin three-star restaurant, and said, can I have a Dr. Pepper zero, right? Uh, there's a strong risk of looking like an idiot. But you can ask for a Coke. Why do you think people, like, not think about context so much in advertising? Because, like, there's a... Ah, right. That's a corker. Thank you. What a question. Nassim Taleb was tweeting about this, that the whole education system selects for and rewards and encourages context-free thinking, right? So, you know, you take the typical maths problem that you're given at school, and it's all about, you know, okay, we, you know, two buses leave a uh, bus station, you know, one heads due north at a speed of 40 miles an hour, the other one heads due west at a speed of 30 miles an hour. You know, what time will it be when they're two hours apart? Two, sorry, what time will it be when they're um, uh, 100 miles apart, which I think is two hours, right? But of course, that's not a real world decision. That's a totally artificial world where you have all the data you need to arrive at an absolute answer. And there's no question of variance in that because there's an exact single right answer, okay? And so the education system, I think, selects for it and also inculcates it, encourages it. And business status, therefore, also is rewarded and awarded to those people who demonstrate it because it has the appearance of being science without being scientific. It's what Hayek called scientism. And I, th I think it's really dangerous because actually the qualities you want in real life are highly contextualized thinking where depending on the circumstances, you bring an entirely different mental model to bear, right? You know, sometimes, sometimes the most important question is, yeah, but do I trust this guy? And that ultimately boils down to an emotional decision. There probably isn't much as procurement would like to try. There probably isn't an algorithm for trustworthiness, for example. You know, you'd look at various cues in, you know, using all sorts of instinctive evolutionary skills, I suspect, in that decision. And so context-free thinking, which is a kind of, you know, it's what, what I call sort of business Asperger's, you know, where you know you free you you remove the social context, for example, you remove the emotional context from decisions, and you remove the complexity. It's it's actually rewarded in business where it should be treated with suspicion. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, schools definitely like yes or no. Like you get graded for like yes, you you pass the test or not. Without and a lot of people could be thinking outside the box and to arrive at the answer, yep. but there's only one answer to get there. I'll give you a direct example from my own experience, which is they're planning to spend sixty billion pounds on this new railway line between London and Manchester via Birmingham. Not a totally insane idea. I don't wholly reject it. Okay, although I suspect it's not a very good idea, particularly with the Zoom explosion 
taking place in business travel okay because most of that business case rests on business travelers to be honest most of the economic case for building that railway line and i just said well hold on a second if you slightly reframe this problem i can solve this problem for you i can increase the capacity of the line which is one of the briefs and i can reduce the duration of the journey the other brief and i can do that for you for a million pounds rather than 60 billion and they said, well, obviously you can't, can you? Because that's stupid. And I said, no, yes, you can. Because every time I travel to Manchester on business, I buy an advanced first-class ticket, which requires me to travel on a specific train, okay? I can't afford to miss that train because my ticket becomes invalid. And actually, I then have to buy a full fare ticket, which would cost about five times as much. So I leave a large margin of error, turn up at Euston 45 minutes before the, my train to Manchester leaves, right? Now, in that time, two other trains, 20 and 40 minutes before my own train, leave half empty most of the time. If you had an app which just said, I'm right here at Euston now, and it said, pay us a fiver, and you can have seat J8 on the, on the train that's 40 minutes early, maybe 20 minutes early, pay us a tenner, and you can have seat J8 in the train that's 40 minutes early, right? I've reduced my journey time to, by 40 minutes. Now, I haven't reduced my journey, my time spent on the train, right? I accept that. But the time on the train is my problem. I like the time on the train. It's comfy. I can get on with work. Nobody disturbs me. People bring me cups of tea, right? That's basically all I'm asking for in life. Now, second thing is it also increases capacity because when you evacuate the American embassy compound in Saigon, okay, you don't leave with a helicopter half empty and say, you're booked on the 12 o'clock flight out. You fill up every helicopter that leaves with available people who are waiting. Okay, simple rule of how you get the greatest capacity of people through any kind of bottleneck. And so there's a there's a capacity constraint to the network that's caused by the insistence that you travel on a specific train and that you're not allowed to travel early. You can't let people travel late. I get that. Okay, but by not allowing people to travel early, you're actually reducing the capacity of the of the network. So I said, and this is inarguable, by the way, the maths behind this is inarguable. This achieves greater capacity on the railway line and it reduces journey time. It costs literally, you know, uh, one uh, sixty thousandth of the cost, okay, of building the goddamn railway. Now, I'm not saying it's the same efficacy, but what I don't understand is why you're building the railway line before you've tried doing this, okay? Right now, the interesting thing is, you'd think people go, "God, that's a really interesting way of looking at it." Thank you very much. You've brought a new perspective to my life. They don't. I talked to people in the railways, and they just they became kind of angry and upset at the whole fact that I'd done this. And one of them said the most fatuous thing I've ever heard in my life, which was, "Yeah, but you'd lose rate retail sales at the station if you reduced waiting time." So, so hold on a sec. We're spending sixty. Now we're spending sixty billion pounds to prop up like news agents and Burger King at Euston Station, because I'm sure there are cheaper ways of doing that, right? Mm -hmm. and this is genuinely how stupid this world is, because we have a stupid mentality, which either comes from academia, maybe it comes from sport, actually, I don't know. But there's a stupid mentality, which is if you win by rewriting the rules, right, it's cheating. But you can rewrite the goddamn rules. Mm -hmm. All you've started with when you define a problem is one person's rule set for solving the problem. It is almost never a reliable definition of the problem itself. It's a proxy for the problem, right? And if you ask the question, why do we want to do this? Why do we want to do this? Why do we? You might get down to a truth, which is oh, ultimately your aim is to do this. Right, well, actually, if you want to do that, there are seven ways of doing it. You don't need to make the trains faster or longer at all.
right? Mm-hmm. But nobody does this. They start with a kind of engineer or an economist definition of what the problem is, which contains within it a presumption about the mode of the solution. Okay? And now, as a result, something in the human mentality regards redefining the problem or rewriting the brief. Rewriting the brief's fine, by the way. You know, the brief's just a, a, you know, it's a direction in which to explore. It's not a truth, right? You know, if you come up, if you come up with a brilliant idea that works and someone says, yeah, but it's slightly off brief, well, there are two solutions. You come up with a new idea that's on brief or you come up with a new brief that the idea is now on, okay? I don't see any distinction between doing those things. But the purity of process seems to matter more to people than the quality of the the end decision or the consequences of the end decision. Yeah, I think you made a great point. I think like rules in general and laws like that we grow up with, like having laws like to not do things, having law rules in school, having rules in sports have have restricted us from not like thinking that if we break a rule, even if the rule is not like we don't know the concept, but if we break any rule something bad's going to happen to her. Well, there's, some, there's something about it. I don't quite know where it comes from, I have to say. And it intrigues me because it's what I call the great creative double standard, which is if you have a creative idea, you have to present it to rational people for appraisal and evaluation. But it doesn't apply the other way around. If someone uses sequential deductive logic to arrive from a bogus premise at an apparently logical, logically derived proposal, Okay, there is no creative quality control applied to that process at all, right? So a bunch of accountants will arrive at a decision about reducing the price of a product, and they won't for a second say, but before we do this, let's actually, let's expand the possible solution space by showing it to some wacky creative people. That direction of travel never happens. The direction of travel where a counterintuitive idea is picked to death by fucking accountants, on the other hand, that direction of travel is universal. And so, you know, it's an extraordinary asymmetry, I think, in the way in which we approach problem solving. I have a question for you that is actually interesting. That's like a real world problem. Like, so like if you're in an environment where you can test, like what is the best way to like present the results of the test? Like you, you can think of counseling, what's the best way to present the results to like a group of like finance people and stuff like that to say like, okay, this worked. Like, cause like, I'm in a pretty creative like space where I could say like let's just test this and let's see what the results are, even if they're good or bad. But- now, yours is a really good question, and one of the great things about behavioral science is that previously you'd say, "Look, this thing worked better than the other thing." Now, even if it were proven, okay, people wouldn't believe it if they didn't know why. But if you said this happens and we think it's because of scarcity bias which is a widely attested human i'm not even sure it's a bias by the way it's simply a widely attested human tendency to value scarce things more highly okay because you can actually say this is part of a common pattern that is found in human behavior rather than this is an outlier or an anomaly the likelihood that an unexpected test result would actually gain some sort of traction would go up quite a lot i think 
And that's the great thing with behavioral economics. It's a brilliant rebranding of psychology, to be absolutely honest. It's psychology. It's social psychology. It's individual behavioral psychology. But it is basically psychology. Daniel Kahneman is a psychologist. He just happened to win the Nobel Prize for economics, okay? Herbert Simon wasn't even an, he wasn't an economist either. He was a kind of polymath. I mean, I'm not even sure how he defined himself at different stages in his life. He was a great AI investigator as well, by the way. He was a huge, huge early kind of proponent of machine intelligence. But the, the interesting thing about behavioral economics is by calling it behavioral economics, the finance director's got to pay attention now. If I went into a finance director, or for that matter, if you went into the president of the United States and said, I'm here to talk to you about psychology, you wouldn't be given the time of day. But if you call it behavioral economics, it falls into that realm of things which those people are supposed to understand and respect. Pity, isn't it, really? But I still say, still play the game. You know, if the rebranding works, that's what alchemy says. If you call Chilean, uh, if you call Patagonian toothfish Chilean sea bass and more people buy it and they enjoy it, I'm not suggesting we should dupe people into eating disgusting fish, but if more people enjoy Patagonian toothfish when it's called Chilean sea bass, go with it, you know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that that's like the craziest part is like a lot of people have to back everything and oh this is the question i had for you this is like trend in marketing about attribution of like where things come from and if you think of it psychologically like how people buy is not like attributed to like that channel normally like like say someone sees a facebook ad they could be doing research about things asking friends about doing a bunch of things but like marketers have to say like facebook brought it in to make to justify the spend of facebook yeah 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 yeah. so i mean the simplest thing of all would be there if you look at how marketers use price reduction okay it's not remotely the way that uh, economists think of it so economists would say there is a certain number of people who buy at one pound and there are more people who buy at 90 pence therefore when you reduce the price to 90 pence okay or you make it you know whatever it is 10 percent extra free okay uh the people who weren't willing to buy at 90 to 90 90 to 99 pence enter the market and sales increase okay right now i don't think marketers use price like that very often at all actually i think they do you put save 10%, right? And people then assume that that offer won't be available forever. And it basically overcomes inertia. I think a lot of discounting is done uh, to sell goods to people who would have paid the full price, but to sell them earlier, because it acts as a spur to action. I don't think it works in the way that the price demand curve works in economics at all. You know, if you put 50% extra free on a bag of McCain oven chips, the, the economic Occam's razor explanation is the attribution of the increase in sales is the reduction in price. But how do we know it isn't the fact that there's a bloody great flash on the packet saying 50% extra free, which means people notice it, or which means people make it, it makes the decision easier because the other brand of oven chips aren't offering you 50% extra free. So you buy on deal, okay? There are, or the retailer could be giving more prominence to the pack because it's a really good bargain, right? We don't know which combination of those things is actually driving the increase in sales. But if, as far as the economist Occam's razor is concerned, the increase in sales is simply driven by moving, you know, down the price demand curve. And it's kind of bollocks.
right? It's a completely unwarranted assumption. One question also quickly is what, what do you think separates like a good advertiser to like a great advertiser? Do you mean as a client or as an employee or? or I'm talking, that, that's a good, I mean, I, I, I could take it both angles. Like what it would make like a good brand that's doing great advertising to like, I mean, good advertising to great advertising versus a, also like you, like Rory, like, what took you from being like good at advertising to being great at advertising? I don't know if I'm. I, 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 <laughs> I mean, age and experience is surprisingly valuable. I think, which is why it's a bit weird that we're such a young industry. Because I think if you've got the right mental toolkit, you can continually learn from your activities. It's probably why David Ogilvy recommended that people spend their first three or four years in direct marketing, because it gives you a kind of vocabulary and a mental mug tree on which to hang your subsequent learnings, which I think a lot of people who go straight into brand advertising don't really have. And so that was useful to me. Starting in direct marketing was useful. Coming from digital might be useful. But behavioral science is also useful because it gives you a kind of mental checklist and patterns of things to explore. I think, I think there's a wonderful phrase which I, was used of a mathematician, which is when you go from being a good mathematician to a really good mathematician, I don't know, if, you know where great lies is difficult, but the difference between a good mathematician and a really good mathematician is when you become a really good mathematician, it's less about being good at the maths and more about knowing what kind of maths to use, I think. And in the same way, I think the ability to deploy a varied arsenal of good, of, of techniques and, and creative, creative tropes, I guess, okay, and to deploy them appropriately against different problems. And so it's very much context-dependent thinking that makes you great, even though we're kind of selected for context-free ability. What, the last question I have for you is, um, what would you tell like a young person getting into like marketing or advertising? Like, what advice would you would you give them? Don't become stereotyped or pigeonholed too soon. The Scott Adams advice, which I came up with independently, is be don't try and be the best at one thing. Be really good at two interconnected things. And, and Scott Adams has written a whole piece about this, which is really interesting, which is, okay, if I, I can't, I'm just trying to remember the analogy he uses, but it's kind of like if you can play, I don't know, let's say you're really good at playing the bassoon, but you're also really good at technology and recording equipment, okay? You've got a whole variety of fairly unique combinatorial skills that you can deploy combining those two things, right? Now, if you try and now, there are a few people, and they're very bad role models, I'd argue, who we venerate for being absolutely brilliant at one thing only. Okay. And if you're lucky enough to be a tennis player who just by dint of your innate talent is just better than any other tennis player, but most of you who try and do this thing, in fact, almost by definition, all but about 20 of you who try and do this will basically fail. Okay. Whereas if you try and develop an interesting combination of two skills, two things happen. One, you're much more resilient because you can actually shift your weight from one to the other. But secondly, you're also much more distinctive and much more unique because there's probably nobody else in the world who's as good at you as at combining these two disparate, not totally disparate things. I'm not saying, you know, but um, 
really interesting. Matthew Syed is a journalist in the UK. Uh, he's kind of a behavioral scientist, but he was also the best ping pong player, table tennis player in Britain for a period of about 10 years. And so he's combined a lot of stuff from sports psychology with behavioral science. And it gives him not only a unique perspective in sports psychology, it gives him a unique perspective in the world, which is why he's now a you know, best-selling author and a highly acclaimed London Times journalist. Because his perspective, the direction from which he comes, is just fundamentally oblique. And it enables him to see things that nobody else can. I mean, that's a great point. Like I'm in marketing operations and I look at data and everything all day, but on the side, I do like growing audiences and like social media and stuff like that. So it gives me like this unique advantage to see like the buyer side and the data, which makes me not like only think about data, like which a lot of people in my profession, they only think like logically like how to connect systems together and how data is, is programmed. Uh, uh, dangerous, the interesting thing is it's possible to be logical, apparently visibly logical, while making actually some huge assumptions. Like, is the average of any importance, right? You know, so, you know, averaging is an unbelievable, contains within it an extraordinarily dangerous act, which is to assume that the average is in any way representative of the individual within it. Nassim Taleb's great phrase, you know, never cross a river that on average is three feet deep, right? Okay. And the information may be, particularly to a behavioral science, what a science angle is what we're actually looking for is anomalies. Because there's something which actually we weren't expecting, and which is an outlier, which might tell us something really interesting or useful. And so quite a lot of mathematical activity contains within it dangerous assumptions but you're free to make those assumptions with a kind of recklessness which aren't allowed in other fields. You know, so you know, when you say the average figure of so-and-so, nobody ever says, yeah, but how do you know the average is not a total distraction? You know, the average human body doesn't really exist, for example. That's what they found when they designed aircraft cockpits, that the number of people who are average on more than three or four of 10 dimensions was actually vanishingly small. Nearly everybody was an outlier on something. And so, you know, I, I do find this really worrying because there's this scientism in business where a lot of business is simply trying to, and digital marketing is particularly guilty of this, by the way, is giving the impression of being scientific when, of course, what you're optimizing is a proxy measure, mate. Right? Okay. <laughs> Click through attention engagement. Okay. They're still proxy measures. <laughs> Even sales is a proxy measure. Right? Now, that sounds a weird thing to say. No, because the job of marketing is to get people who wouldn't have bought a product to pay full price for it. The job of performance marketing is to get people who would have bought the product already to buy it at a discount. Okay. So, you know, so to be absolutely honest, you know, if you're testing your creative, the most effective creative will often be a short term discount, save 20% on, right? That is by definition. So you're optimizing a discount message and your targeting is probably optimized towards finding people who would have bought the goddamn product already. Now, if I declare myself a huge success as a hotelier in terms of my performance marketing, but 50% of the sales I made were people who stayed in the Hilton rather than the Doubletree by Hilton, okay, right? Versus another guy who's less obviously successful, but is actually getting people to stay in the Hilton rather than staying with friends, camping, uh, you know, 
staying with a competitor brand, you know, sleeping in their cars, right? The second sale is much more valuable as an incremental source of growth than the first sale. The first sale is merely internal cannibalization. And yet you're being optimized on something which actually is not a growth metric at all. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? You've got to get the bottom of the funnel right, because if your bottom of your funnel is terrible, then there's no point in trying to improve the top. But if genuinely you think that by solely improving the bottom of the funnel metrics, you're improving the health and long-term viability of the business overall, you're sadly deluded, mate. I love this is awesome. I could talk about this forever. It's still wanna, a pro- even yeah. even sales is a proxy, right? Yeah. It's not value creation, right? It's a sale. Now, there's a famous story about this where you have five waiters and you say, "We're not very busy. Can you just go out in the streets and hand out twenty percent off pizza discounts?" Right? And you know, four of them go out. Okay, what's your conversion rate? Well, you know, you handed out 200 leaflets and we got 20 sales. You handed out 200. And then the last guy, you only handed out 40 leaflets. You had 100% conversion. And he said, yeah, by the time I got back, there was a queue outside the pizza restaurant. So I just handed them all a 20% discount. (laughs) Now, by conventional metrics, that guy could look like a really successful salesman. Actually, he's a walking disaster. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of funny because that's a test that I've been running lately is that like I'm testing like, what type of like offers work with my audience? Like what type, like what could bring them to do that? But the thing is like, you have to apply the logic that like, what about the people that would have already bought already? Like if you, if you give them a discount. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Overcoming inertia is valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are a load of people who might just drift away, getting them to actually jump or bite. Okay. Is valuable. Okay. You've got to hook the fish. Okay, but it's not fair to actually attach the same value to that kind of activity as there might be to long term brand building, which is expanding the range of your potential franchise. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be measured in the same way. This has been awesome, but I want to give you like a couple minutes to talk about like where people can get alchemy and like why they should read it because it's one of my favorite. Oh, thank you. It's just out. It's called in the United States. It's called Alchemy, the Art and Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business and Life. I think in the UK, it's got a different title, which is The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. The text is the same. There's also an audio book read by me. Now, I'm not saying read by me on the assumption that you want to listen to me for bloody seven hours. But when the author reads his own book or her own book, you're free to extemporize, okay? And you're free to change do not into don't. And you're free to go off in a bit of a digression. And you're free to change written English into oral English, okay? Now, when you get a professional voiceover artist to do an audio book, they're only really judged on clarity and fidelity to the original text. And so there isn't that same license to twiddle with the content to make it more suitable for the spoken word. And so the audio book I can recommend because it's very much a spoken word book rather than a book that's read aloud. Okay, the paperback I think is just out in the US, though not yet in the UK. That's been delayed by COVID a little bit. And you can also get it hardback at Amazon and all good bookshops. One more plug. Yeah, Okay, and this is vital. 11th of June, Nudge Stock. Nudge, as in Richard Thaler's book, Nudge, N-U-D-G-E-S-T-O-C-K, as in Woodstock only, Nudge. Do not forget the G, because nudestock.co.uk is a very different website from (laughs) nudgestock.co.uk, okay? 
But it's on the 11th of June. It's an all-day festival. Now, all day in British terms means afternoon to early evening in the US or a bit later in Hawaii, okay? We've got Daniel Kahneman. We've got John Cleese. We've got Professor Nicholas Christakis from Yale. We've got a whole panoply of behavioral scientists speaking for the day in what is the Ogilvy um, Festival of Behavioral Science. Attendance will be free. It will be live streamed over YouTube, so you won't lose the use of your laptop for the entire day. And um, I can guarantee that it's worth more than the ticket price. (laughs) Um, 11th of June. If you want to send me the link, I'll, I'll, I'll post about it as well. I'll get Anna to do that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you, just because I'm just interested in your thinking of this, why are the titles different in the, the UK and the US? Is there a psychological uh, it's, thing? It's happened with Tim Harford's latest book on economics, that the publishers like... It may be that Americans were keener on having the word marketing in the title because there's a bigger market for business books in the US. Okay, and they wanted a book where you know any marketer would go brand marketing. Okay, it also includes life, not irrelevantly because you can deploy creativity in everyday life. Whereas the Brits wanted it to be more for a general audience because our our business book market is is comparatively smaller than it is in the US. Cool, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on. I, this has been extremely valuable, and I can I'm actually super excited for this this nudge fest because I love all those behavioral psych- economists, not psychologists. Psychologists. You'll, you'll have a great lineup. And John Cleese has just written a fantastic book on creativity, which I'll plug for him happily. And it's called the title of the book's creativity. There's a sub, uh, there's a subtitle as well. I mean, I think it's just a short and gentle guide or something, but that's, that's something I can highly recommend as well. It's a very short but incredibly potent read on the whole topic of creativity and originality. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm super excited. It's a joy. Send me the link once it's out. Cool.